there are a number of men who will do everything they can uh, to put off what has become known as the DTR talk. Uh, they'll run from it. They'll avoid it altogether. They'll pretend like they're not listening. They will even go as far as to to uh, terminate the relationship uh, to avoid having to have the DTR talk, uh, especially if they feel like it's imminent. DTR, what does it stand for? Define the relationship. All right, it's the define the relationship talk uh, that every couple has to have. It's the official talk every couple has to have at some point in their relationship to make the decision whether it's worth going forward or not. You know, it's it kind of goes like this, you know, are we in this together? You know, are we kind of seeing eye to eye on all this? Where, where, where is this going? How do you feel about me? Do you want to f- spend the rest of your life with me or not? Do you, do you love me? It's the talk where the couple, they sit down together and decide if there's something here. You know, are you moving from casual to commitment? Uh, it's the talk where you decide if it's just more than physical attraction. You know, is this relationship moving towards deeper devotion and, and long-term commitment as a former college and young adult pastor, my wife and I had the privilege of being involved with many a persons uh, who were anticipating the DTR talk in their own relationship. And they'd sit down with us and, and cry. And why isn't he on the same page that I am? Or why doesn't she want to have this talk? Or why isn't she willing to make this commitment? Some people are so desperate they want to have the DTR talk on the first date. You know, let's just get it over with on the first date. Are we in this together or not? If not, let's move on. You know, but here's the thing, how you feel about having the DTR talk has a lot to do with how you feel about the relationship. I mean, it really does. I mean, if you love the person, then the talk really can't happen soon enough. I mean, you're all about it. Let's do this. Let's get this over. And if you're not committed, then you probably get a little anxious, uh, a little nervous about having the talk whatsoever. In fact, that it, it might take you to the point where you might get a little short on breath, maybe even break out in hives once in a while or kind of enter into this fight or flight response. If it comes up, your willingness to have the conversation all depends on how you feel about the person you are in relationship with. Well, this morning, I want to encourage you, some of you, to think about having the DTR talk in your life. Not with me, and we're not turning this into a relationship series where I'm asking you to have this talk with your spouse or your boyfriend or whatever. I just think that it's time for some of you to have that talk with Christ and to really make a decision about where you are or want to be in your relationship with Him. Now, I get the fact that for some of you, this is kind of like a first date experience. You know, you're new to all this. You're new to Genesis. You're new to this whole talk about a relationship with Jesus. And so to kind of do this, I have this talk on the first date. It's a little awkward. And so if if you're here and if that's you, you kind of get the week off. All right. You can just kind of kick back and take it all in and listen and and do with as you choose. But most of us in this room need to have a DTR talk. When it comes to our relationship with Christ, you need to define the importance and the role of your relationship with Jesus and what it means for you. And for many of you, I know you're ready. I mean, you can't wait to have this talk. I mean, you've been waiting for this talk for a long time and you're ready to move to the next level in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you don't want convenient, you don't want half-hearted commitment, you don't want casual, you want more of God in your life. And so you're ready to have this talk. But still, I think there are others of you 
and you're not really ready to have this talk. You're not really ready to have this conversation. I mean, you like the setup the way you have it right now and you're all about Jesus and and you're into that and he's a great guy and all and you like the church and it's something that you do on Sundays and you like what you've got going on and you like knowing that you're headed to heaven. But the thought of stepping back and taking a moment to honestly evaluate where you are with your relationship with Jesus Christ right now is a little frightening. It makes you a little nervous. But I want to ask you this morning as we get started, where do you stand right now in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And please don't lie to yourself. And please don't try and lie to God because he knows. But where are you? Where on the priority chart does your relationship with Jesus come into play? Because here's what I want you to see this morning. Uh, It's a brutal truth, but it's the truth. That God is not interested in half-hearted commitment. In fact, it drives him crazy. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, the Lord says, and he's speaking to his children, his people here. He says, these people, they come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They come near to me with their mouth, but but their heart is really not in it. I mean, have you ever been in a relationship with someone where your heart wasn't in it and her heart was? Or his heart was. I mean, have you ever been in that place? It's not a good place to be. It's kind of an uncomfortable, awkward situation. And if you're like me in those moments, you don't want to have the DTR talk. You know, you you don't want to face that brutal truth. But continuing in the relationship isn't fair to either person. I mean, it's not fair at all. And God shows us here in Isaiah that this is kind of a one foot in, one foot out relationship. And it kind of drives him crazy. This middle-of-the-road, half-hearted commitment drives him crazy. It it drives him insane. And and while these words were first spoken here in Isaiah over 2,500 years ago, I wonder if they are the same kinds of words that God would choose to describe to most Christians today. Half-hearted. You know, acknowledge me with their mouths, acknowledge me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I mean, would God describe us in this way? We're calling it practical atheism. If you're taking notes and you want to write down this definition, it's simply this. It's, it's saying, you know what, I believe in God, but it's living as if he doesn't exist. I mean, I believe in God. I go to church. I'm all about it. I've got my ticket to heaven, but it's living as if, you know, he doesn't exist. We call it practical atheism. Last week I mentioned a, a recent Gallup poll that reported that 94% of people today in the United States of America claim some sort of faith or belief in God. 94% of people claim some sort of faith or belief in God. You know, but I can't help ask the question, how many lives are transformed today because of this? You know, how many people love differently? How many of that 94% are, are more hopeful about tomorrow or being changed every single day by the love of Jesus Christ because of their belief in God? I think if we were to take a look at those numbers in light of the 94%, I think it'd be pretty discouraging. From God's perspective, devastating. Devastating when it comes to followers of Jesus and, and how we live and how we're changed. It's practical atheism. And last week we talked about the reality that many people believe in God. You know, even just as this, this poll suggests, and it's just a poll, I know. But how many live differently because of that? We talked about this belief in God, but our lack of fear of him, that we don't really fear God. I don't believe we give him the respect that he deserves, that he requires of us. And if you missed the message, I want to encourage you to check it out and you can get a CD or you can go to our website and, and check out that message. But today I want to talk about the danger of believing in God, but, but coming to this place where we don't want to go overboard with it. 
You know, that we decide, you know what, I believe in God and I want to do the Sunday thing and I'm going to give God different compartments of my life at different times, but I'm in charge, I'm in control. But I don't ever want to get to the point where somebody would say you're a fanatic about what you believe or you've gone way too overboard. I, I, don't, I don't want to go overboard when it comes to this Jesus stuff. And it's not that you want out of the relationship. It's just kind of that you've come to this place where you're okay with the way that things are. And I think it's time for the DTR to happen. And so I want to show you an example uh, by going to Scripture, by going to the Word of God, of God's impression of half-hearted believers, half-hearted followers, and, and maybe some encouragement that we can take from this. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. Go to the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 3. And some of you are already shaken because you're like, wow, we're pulling out the big guns today. Go into the book of Revelation. It's going to scare, you know, he's going to put the fear of hell in us today. Well, we're not going to go quite there. But let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3 uh, together. So go to the last book of the Bible. There are seven letters that open the book of Revelation written by Jesus to seven different churches in the ancient world. And with these letters, Jesus takes the opportunity to say some good things, to kind of give an evaluation. It's almost like kind of an end-of-the-year review for seven of the churches here in this book of Revelation. And for six of them, he's got some great things to say to them. And then he drills them. I mean, he's going to open up with some encouragement. Hey, here's what you're doing a good job in. But then he drills them uh, with some words. This church that we're going to look at, this, this letter to the church of Laodicea, this community in Asia Minor, he's got nothing good to say. He's just going to get to the heart of the point uh, with them. And so I want to take a look at a few of these words that he shared with this church in Laodicea. But before we see these words, let me kind of give you a little bit of a background about this city and this church to, to better contextualize for you what Jesus is going to say to them. Laodicea was a wealthy city located in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. All right, and it was this wealthy city. Uh, they were known for being this commercial center with a great banking industry and a textile industry and a famous medical college. Well, 35 years before these words were spoken through Jesus to John and copied down on paper, uh, there was this great earthquake around the year A.D. 60 that took place in Laodicea. And it was a massive earthquake. It was a devastating earthquake and everything was destroyed. Well, for Laodicea, for the people of Laodicea, rather than accept a stimulus package from Rome, which was kind of the headquarters, the, the main governing body of the world, they said, no, we're going to take care of this on our own because they were a very wealthy city with wealthy people. And so they said no uh, to the aid and they rebuilt their city all by themselves. This is true. Absolutely true. And again, because they were wealthy, well, they built this city. They quickly rebuilt this city in Asia Minor, which was unlike any other city uh, in this part of the world. It was this great wealthy city, much like what Vegas uh, would be for, for the United States today. It was full of theaters and stadiums and these elegant uh, ba public baths and the state-of-the-art shopping, uh, even for the ancient world. It was like this overnight boom. And Laodicea became this influential community that everyone looked to a prospering community. It was so extravagant that it just sort of sucked people in from everywhere. Uh, there was, uh, it, it sucked people in because of its lure and its culture. I mean, just so many things to enjoy, so much abundance, uh, everything you would need right there in the city. Well, there was a church in Laodicea. 
a church that historically was known for doing some good things, but the people of the church got sucked into all of it that was happening around them as well in this culture. And once known for their great faith and their great work, the church in Laodicea got lost in all of the things and all of the stuff of this worldly city. And so the people were focused on too, too focused on money and they were too focused on things and they lost sight of God and God took note. And so through Christ, through Jesus, here are the words that Jesus spoke to this city in Revelation chapter three, verses 14 and 15. It says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And here's the, here are the words. I know your deeds, Jesus says to these people, to this church in Laodicea, that you are neither cold nor hot. And then Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. I know your deeds. I, I, I just wish that you were either cold or hot. You're, you're neither one. And, 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 and hey, what's going on with the two of us anyways, Jesus says. I mean, are you into this relationship as much as I am? Do you want to spend the rest of your life with me or not? I mean, just choose. And, and Jesus is not so much talking about their beliefs and what they believed here. But he's just saying, hey, I want to see what you believe, too. You know, I want to see it in your acts. I want to see the way that it changes your life and the way that you change how you live. I I don't want you to just be in the world. You know, I, I mean, I want you to be in the world. I don't want you to be of the world. I don't want you to be consumed by all of this. I want you to be salt and light. I mean, you talk a lot of talk, but I'm not seeing much visible evidence. You're not hot. You're not cold. And as Christians, we've, we've taken this verse out of context. We've kind of changed the meaning of it a little bit to describe some different things about Christianity. But, but I want to get to the heart of what Jesus was really meant here by this hot and cold terminology. Because it's pretty interesting language. And, and in order to understand what he's referring to, you kind of have to understand the geography uh, of Laodicea. Uh, because here's the thing. Again, Laodicea was this wealthy city. But, but get this. They had a hard time getting water into the city it was one of the challenges of the city of laodicea and apparently there were no natural water sources in laodicea but thanks to the architecture in the roman world laodicea was able to pipe in water from at least two different locations uh, nearby through these manufactured water aqueducts Uh, history says that they received water from two different cities Uh, we've got a map here to kind of show you, um, if you look in the center, maybe a little off to the left, you see the city of Laodicea. There were two cities where Laodicea received their water from that we believe. One is Hierapolis and the other is Coloss. And here's the interesting thing about that. This, the water came in through these pipes from the city of Hierapolis. Both towns were about 10 miles away. Uh, Hierapolis was known for, and I'm not sure how to say the word, so I'm going to probably say it different every time. But Hierapolis was known for its hot Uh, mineral springs Uh, this is what they were known for and and the water was used for medicinal purposes Uh, people would come from all over uh, people with injuries or just these ongoing chronic illnesses to bathe in the hot water it was uh, it was comforting and even provided healing and so this was one of the purposes of the water in Hierapolis and everyone knew that It was what they were known for. But unfortunately for Laodicea, by the time the water was piped from up to 10 miles away from Heropolis, guess what happened? The hot water became lukewarm. I mean, it wasn't as useful as it was to those in Heropolis. Well, they also received water from Coloss. Our book of Colossians was written to the church in Coloss. Well, Coloss was known for its cold water. Uh, due to the nearby mountains, the, the snow melt from the mountains provided these 
cold, refreshing water, you know, and hot days or whatever. But, but guess what happened? By the time that water flowed to the city of Laodicea, the cold water warmed up. It became lukewarm. And as you can imagine, you know, it, it just it wasn't as useful. I mean, everyone knew this about Laodicea. And, and in addition to being lukewarm water, it was full of all these minerals. And so it, it was nasty. And historical records indicate that Laodicea had a bad reputation when it came to their water source because it was nasty water. And so you've got this great, extravagant city and they've got this water problem that everybody knows about. Pretty frustrating. You know, and Jesus, he knew this and he called the church in Laodicea. He just kind of went to the center of all. He says, you know what, you're lukewarm people. Your church is lukewarm. Who enjoys you? You know, you know how disappointing lukewarm water is. You, know, you get up in the morning on a cold morning. You know, you're getting ready for work and you're ready to jump in and take a hot shower only to find that your kids have used up all the hot water. You know, and so it's a lukewarm shower. There's nothing more, you know, discouraging about that. Or you're, or you're sitting at work and you've got your mug full of coffee and you've got it, you know, you've got it fixed to just the way that you like it. And you go to take a drink and you didn't realize how long it's been. And it's actually, it's kind of lukewarm. It doesn't taste as good as it does when it's hot. Or you're outside working or you're working out or something and you've got this water bottle of cold, refreshing water and you, you didn't realize that you left it in the sun. And so by the time you go to grab it and take a drink of it, that cold, refreshing water is, has turned somewhat lukewarm. And it's, it's not as refreshing as it was. It doesn't taste right. And look what Jesus said about the people of the church of Laodicea in verse 16. He says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You are neither hot nor cold. You don't serve any purpose like Heropolis or Coloss. And because of this, I'm going to do what? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The Greek word here is the word emeo. It means spit, spew, vomit, upchuck. You know, whatever word you want to choose, it's about as disgusting as you can make it. I mean, Jesus is literally saying, there's no getting around it. You make me sick. Because you are half-hearted, because you're one foot in, because you're middle-of-the-road people, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I can't stomach you any longer. You just don't seem to get this. You live as if I don't exist. And, and I, I can kind of imagine God looking at much of what we call Christianity today, thinking the same sort of things. I, I know who I am. I know what I've done for you. I've given you Jesus Christ, and that's changed your life forever and i've given you the holy spirit to walk with you each day the very presence of god in your lives and all you do is squeeze me into your schedule you know all i do is get a little bit of time on sunday and nothing ever seems to change about the way that you live and and you can't receive this forgiveness and so you throw me a bone once in a while and i'm just a fraction of your life and i just honestly believe that god looks at the way that many of us prioritize our lives and and where God fits into all of it. And it's probably enough to make him sick. Enough at times to make him want to vomit. Lukewarm Christians. Practical atheists. You know what an oxymoron is? It's a great word. I love saying that word. Oxymoron. Say it again. Oxymoron. All right. It's when you put two words together that don't match. You know, red lobsters having a jumbo shrimp feast. All right. What's wrong with that? You know, jumbo shrimp or, 
How about this one? Death benefits, all right, on your insurance policy. Yeah, what, what's that all about? Who benefits from that experience? Uh, safety hazard, huh? Isn't that a great one? Safety hazard, government efficiency, you know? <laughs> Lukewarm Christian. Lukewarm Christian. It doesn't work. You know, they don't go together. It's an oxymoron. I mean, it doesn't fit with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And here's the thing. You can search the Bible over and over. And I challenge you to do this. I challenge you to take the Gospels and to read through them for yourself. Go ahead and look for a situation where God looks favorably upon people who are one foot in, one foot out, middle of the road, half-hearted believers. It's not there. You can't find it. I mean, do it. I mean, you can search the Bible thoroughly. Find one example where God speaks highly about people who are 50% in, 50% out. I mean, it's not a pleasant picture, and it's what we find with the Laodiceans. And Jesus' response to them was, there's no place for you. I literally want to spit you out of my mouth. And it was the Laodiceans then, it was the men and women of this church in Laodicea. But sadly, I wonder if it's much of what we call Christianity today. I mean, it's, it's way too easy to be a Christian in America. I, mean, I think we make it as simple as we can. There's one guy that I enjoy, a pastor. Uh, he's written a book. Uh, his name's Francis Chan. He's written this book entitled Crazy Love. And I, I know that some of you have probably read this book, and I would highly recommend this book to anyone. He's a pastor from California and great teacher and our connection group has been reading this together on sunday nights the group that we host at our home and just a a quick plug we um in january are going to be offering groups again and if you're not in a group right now or if you sat out this first semester uh the entire month of january you'll have the opportunity to get into a connection group and meet some people and and study the bible together and those groups will start up at the end of january so I, i hope that you'll think about that but chan francis chan dedicates one chapter of his book in trying to compare the Laodiceans to, to you and I today. Uh, lukewarm Christians that Jesus was referring to then and, and what that looks like today. I mean, what, what would be the same types of characteristics in, in the church today that would lead to the point where we could be called lukewarm? Ten characteristics that I pulled from, and I just want to give them to you quickly. And again, if you're following along, you can fill in the blanks. But here, here's what he says about what lukewarm Christians look like in our society today. First, lukewarm Christians crave acceptance from people more than acceptance from god man this is me high school i'm totally all over this in high school i mean we want to fit in seek to fit in at all costs they want people to be like them they want to blend in you know we don't want to cause any trouble either we don't want to be called religious fanatics and so instead of doing what god wants us to do we often go with the flow and do what's popular and acceptable you know lukewarm christians think more about what people think rather than god and Even Jesus said, woe to you when all men think well of you. The second characteristic is that lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith in Christ. And I mean, it's understandable because I I really believe we've lost sight of the power and transformation that only Jesus can offer to us when it comes to our own salvation. And even in the church, we've lost sight of the power of that message. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so that's why... You know, they're lukewarm. That's why we're lukewarm. And so if a person dies, we just kind of hope that Uncle Joe, because he was a good person, will end up in heaven. That in the end, because God's gracious, because God's merciful, because they were good, 
you know, they'll end up in heaven. And so we don't believe in the power, the transforming power of Jesus like we should. And we don't want to impose our beliefs on anyone because we don't want to be controversial. You know, who are we to say, well, Jesus is the only way. But Jesus said, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my father in heaven. The third characteristic is that lukewarm Christians do whatever it takes to reduce their guilt. If if they feel guilty, they'll they'll do whatever it takes in order to, to get rid of some of that guilt. And that might mean going to church occasionally. You know, whether it be a couple Sundays a month or singing the songs or, or praying the prayer, whatever makes them feel a little bit better. Might even pray uh, for forgiveness occasionally, but there really is no intention of turning from that sin. The prayer just kind of helps take away the guilt. The fourth is lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth rather than eternity in heaven. You know, we're all about what happens right here. We're all about what happens right now in this moment. You know, and our focus isn't on heaven. We, we forget that our citizenship as followers of Jesus Christ is in heaven and we eagerly anticipate and wait for a savior from there. And so we make it about our things and our look and our house and our jobs and our bank accounts. And it's about maintaining or achieving a particular standard of living. It's the here and now, what can I accomplish here? The fifth characteristic is that lukewarm Christians gauge their morality by comparing to others. You know, I'm not as bad as that person. You know, lukewarm Christians, rather than compare ourselves to Christ, rather than evaluate who we're becoming in light of who Jesus is, we compare ourselves to others. And so we say, you know, I may not be no Billy Graham, you know, but but I'm a pretty good person. Or number six, the lukewarm Christian wants to be saved from the penalty of sin without changing their lives. God, forgive me. I don't really plan on making any changes in my life, but I want enough of you to stay out of hell. Please don't Please don't ask me to go overboard on any of this, on this Jesus stuff. The seventh characteristic is a lukewarm Christian turns to God only when they're in a bind. I mean, they believe in God. There's no doubt about it at all whatsoever. But it's like God becomes a tool in the toolbox. You know, I've got my God tool. You know, so my marriage is a little rocky right now, so I'll grab that God tool. I know where to get it. I know where to find it. Or or the money situation, the financial situation is a little difficult right now, so I, I'll get my God tool and... And then we just kind of put the God tool back in the box when we don't need it. But we know where it is when we do. The eighth eighth characteristic of a lukewarm Christian is that they give whenever it doesn't hinder the standard of their own living. I mean, he'll give, she'll give, but but truthfully, the lukewarm Christian doesn't give as much as the non-believer today. I mean, there are some studies that show this. Studies show that non-Christians are actually more generous than Christians today, which is so sad to hear. And I realize this isn't the case in every situation. The ninth characteristic is that lukewarm Christians are not much different than the rest of the world. I I love this. I I love what Francis Chan says in his book. Uh, He says, something is wrong when the life of a believer makes sense to a non-believer. Those are powerful words. I'm going to say them again. Something is wrong when the life of a believer makes sense to a non-believer. Again, we are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We are called to be light where there is darkness. We are called to bring salt and to make things salty again. So there's a taste and a flavor, you know, but lukewarm Christians look the same, talk the same, cuss the same, dress the same, educate the kids the same, have the same morals and are entertained much the same way as non-Christians find entertainment. They get divorced as much as everyone else. Why? Because when it comes down to it, In many cases, in many examples, lukewarm Christians are not much different than anyone else. And number 10, the last one, as Chan writes, lukewarm Christians want the benefits of what Christ did without conforming to who he is. 
And I really think that summarizes it all. I believe that that's the heart of it. I mean, we're about, you know, give me all the good stuff, but I don't want to become like him. You know, I want to I want to pick and choose in all of this. I, I, I want to go middle of the road, whether we like to believe it or not. I want to go half hearted. I want to kind of be one foot in, one foot out. Lukewarm. Practical atheism. And what's God's response to this kind of living to the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation? I want to spit you out of my mouth. You make me nauseous. You are so lukewarm. And I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, these are these are uncomfortable words for me. And, and it's frightening. And it's it's tough to talk like this or even to share these truths. But I just really believe as we look at Scripture that it even calls into question whether lukewarm Christians are really Christians at all. Because Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him. He he wants to change us and transform us, not out of guilt, but by the motivation of his incredible, relentless, unending love for who we are. He wants to see that in us. Uh, C.S. Lewis had some great words, a great, great writer, great philosopher. Uh, He said, Christianity, if, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. I mean, a tough words, tough message. And I realize that in 30 minutes, this is kind of a tough thing to throw on all of you. I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of working through this over the last couple of weeks. And, and I look at my life and the sad reality is, and, and the personal conviction for me is that I see too many areas of practical atheism and even lukewarmness in me. And it's pretty disgusting. And it's so easy for me to function as a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Jesus Christ. To kind of clock in and clock out. And the thought of that is really working on me right now. This is the work that God's doing in me and the change that he's doing in me. And, and, and I think maybe some of you can relate because you, you know what it's like. You're a full-time mom. You know, and you're a part-time follower of Jesus Christ right now. And those little rugrats, they've taken a toll on you over these years. But because of it, you know, you realize, maybe you're realizing this morning, you know, I'm kind of a part-time follower of Jesus right now. Or maybe you're a business owner and you've been very successful in your business or in your company that you work for and, and you've made a name for yourself and you've done some great things and you're a full-time, you know, business uh, employee or a, an owner. But you realize more and more that you're a part-time follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, you give everything you have to your job, to your company, to whatever it is that you're doing, but, but it's at a cost. And you're realizing that you're a part-time follower of Jesus. Or you're a student, a full-time student, whether it be high school or college student. And I can't think or imagine how difficult it must be for you today because high school has changed a ton, even since I've been there. And the culture of college campuses, and, and I can't believe how difficult it is because, you know, you know, you get caught up into the mess of all the self-absorption and the narcissism today and the alcohol abuse and the sexual immorality and even this indoctrination of, indoctrination of tolerance for anyone and for everything. And I mean, it doesn't call into question about how we should love, but it's got you trapped. And the next thing you know, you're a full-time student and you're a part-time follower of Jesus Christ. And so when I read about Laodicea and these people, I think about us, I think about me. You know, the stadiums, the theaters, the malls. I mean, we have so much. We have everything that we could possibly need and more so. And it's so easy to serve God here. It's so comfortable. And we've made it really simple. 
And because it's so easy, you know, because we have more than we could ever want, it's so easy to become lukewarm. But, but go to a place where if you confess to be a Christian, you get your head cut off, it changes everything. You know, it changes your faith. It, it, it challenges you to take a stand for what you live for and, and what Jesus Christ has done in your life and his incredible love for you. I mean, Jesus' call to commitment is clear. He wants all or nothing. That's the brutal truth of Scripture. I don't know any way of saying it more clearly. He wants all or nothing from us. And the thought of a person calling himself a Christian without full devotion is is absurd in God's eyes. I mean, the idea of non-fruit-bearing Christians is something we've made up in order to make Christianity easier. We want to follow our own course without having to do all the work. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus was inviting men and women to come follow him, to give everything they had to follow him. It's, it's the same call today, verses 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. I challenge you to take this verse and, and you pray this verse. All right, you read this verse for yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart and your life the power and the transformation and the sacrifice that Christ is calling us to with our lives. Do it. You know, good luck finding a loophole. There's no loophole in there. You know, there's no place where, well, you know, okay, there is this fanatic side of things and then there's this, if you don't really want to get involved too much with it, side of things. There's one call that Christ gives to us and that's to deny self. You know, it's, it's where we say, you know what, I can't be the center of my world any longer. That, that Christ has to be my center. It's Jesus at the center. And it's not just saying no to yourself. It, it's no longer acknowledging yourself. It, it's complete surrender. It's saying nothing else will satisfy me. Nothing else can fulfill me. Nothing else will bring me happiness. You know, is there such a thing as a lukewarm Christian? You, you answer that. That's a question for you to wrestle with this week. I've been wrestling with it too. Is there such a thing as a lukewarm Christian? Can these words go together? You tell me. You know, it was about eight months into uh, our relationship when Jenny and I were dating that we had our DTR talk. Um, Was I a senior? I think I had just graduated from college. And Jenny had one more year. She was working at a camp, a summer camp, a church camp in northern Indiana. And I went up to visit her uh, one evening where she had some free time. And uh, we hadn't planned the talk, but uh, it was kind of imminent. I think we both knew it was coming. And so we, uh, on this particular evening, as the sun was setting, we got into a canoe and actually canoed out onto this, this very quiet lake. And I took my guitar and sang to her a little bit. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> So I played the clarinet, remember? Um, so and there's nothing romantic about that. In fact, I was trying to keep that a hidden secret. Um, but so we went out on this lake and we were just talking and one thing kind of led to another in our conversation. And we started to have this DTR talk that I think we both knew we needed to have. And, you know, it's like, well, are you in this? Uh, is there really a desire to date anyone else? You know, what do, what do we think love is? Do you love me? And I mean, it wasn't the moment when we got engaged, but I think we were making the decision that, okay, this is more than just 
physical attraction or just hanging out together on the weekends. I mean, we, we see something together in the future. And you know, 12 years later, I'm so thankful we had that conversation. And, you know, 12 years ago, there's no way that I could have understood what that means even now 12 years later. I mean, you just kind of have to enter into the relationship in order to understand what love is. I mean, it's not just a feeling. It's this covenant relationship that you enter into and you support one another and you walk with one another. And once in a while, you need to step back and you need to take a real evaluation with where things are. And But, you know, with even with the obstacles and the ups and down and the curves in the road and stuff, I... I mean, our love for one another is greater today because we were willing to enter into this relationship with one another. And, and it, takes some, it takes some deeds. It takes some actions. I mean, you can't just say the words. You've, you've got to show them. But there's a conversation that I had when I was 12 years old that was even more important than the one I had with my wife. And it's the day that I invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. And I can't say that when I was 12, I completely understood what Christ's love means for me today or what it will mean for me 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But I knew that in that moment when I invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life, when I accepted his forgiveness for my sins, when I acknowledged that I wanted him to be the Lord of my life, when I was baptized to to show publicly that I had made this decision for Christ to follow him obediently in this. I think there was at least a part of me that knew that my life was changed forever, that my eternity was sealed on that day because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And sure, there have been some curves in the road, and sure, there have been some obstacles since, and sure, there have been some fruitful seasons and some fruitless seasons and some dry seasons in my relationship with Jesus. But what I learn and what I realize more and more every day is that it's about the relationship that's been made available to me. And that God has a purpose for my life. That He loves me. That He cares for me. That He sent His Son Jesus for me. But He also wants to have a relationship with me. And that's what God wants from you too. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you to make that possible, that you can have a relationship with him. And my motivation for you today, I don't want it to be a motivation of guilt. That you read all of these characteristics, that you read about this lukewarmness, that you see yourself in it and go, well, I'm guilty, so I guess I need to change the way that I live. That's not what God wants He wants our motivation for change and transformation to come out of the realization that Jesus Christ has died for us, that his grace is sufficient, you know, that his death does bring power and that he's willing to change us and transform us. And so some of you, you need to have that talk with God again. And your eternity has been sealed. The moment that you gave your life to Jesus Christ doesn't change no matter what the path has looked like up until this point. But maybe you need a a, a refresher, a reminder that God wants a relationship with you. But I believe that there may be some of you here this morning. And you've never taken the opportunity to invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. You haven't taken advantage of the relationship that he offers to each of us.
You can pray, God, let Jesus be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. Set my eternity for heaven. And he'll forgive you. And we'll have some people down front after the service today if you'd like to talk about that or pray about anything. But do you want it? Is that the type of relationship you want? I I encourage you to define that this morning. Let's pray. God, our prayer today is that you would reveal yourself to us. I just pray this morning, God, that you would wreck us. May we see how broken and needy we are so that the good news will truly be the good news. Teach us what it means to deny ourselves, to follow your son Jesus in every way of our life. Not half-hearted, not middle of the road, not one foot in, one foot out, not when it's convenient. And for those that are here this morning who have been Christians for a while now, and this morning are realizing that they have become so lukewarm, God, will you meet them at their seats this morning? And as they seek you today, God, take all of them, take every bit forgive sins god take us god every bit of us so that we may follow you with a complete devotion we just invite you to come in and transform us that you would motivate us through the power and the love of jesus and we pray that you would be at the center of everything that we do and it's in jesus name we pray amen